0: Hello and welcome to the Pale Podcast of the Hindu. I'm Kalol Bhattacharji, your host for today. Israel's military operation against Gaza began soon after the October 7 attack by Hamas on Israeli targets. Over the past weeks, the Israeli Defense Forces have carried out a relentless campaign bombing civilian locations with the argument that it will not opt for a ceasefire till the hamas is eradicated last friday the u.n saw the adoption of a non-binding jordanian resolution in new york by a large majority of member states it drew 120 votes in favor 14 voted against and 45 countries abstained the general assembly adopted a major resolution and called for an immediate durable, and sustained humanitarian truce, leading to a cessation of hostilities. It was proposed by Jordan and backed over 45 countries. India, of course, abstained and was criticized for that domestically. Today, we discuss why the multilateral global body is failing to rise to the occasion as the Israeli campaign continues leading to the death of more than 9,000 civilians majority of whom are infants, children, and women. To discuss the subject, we have two of India's most seasoned diplomats with us, Ambassador Vivek Kadju and Ambassador Rakesh Sood, both of whom have served in critical locations and have extensive experience in global and regional affairs as well as in multilateral platforms. I would start asking uh, by the role of the UN in this crisis and why it is appearing so toothless in this case. And I would urge uh, Ambassador Sood to to begin uh, by explaining for our listeners why is it appearing so toothless and so helpless. Ambassador Sood.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Kalol. I think uh, let me just begin by setting out the background. The UN came into being in the aftermath of World War II. And I think it is very clear that any kind of a global order has to have two attributes in order to be successful. One, it must reflect a convergence of views among the major powers of the day. And second, it must seek to provide a global public good. In other words, it must have a saleability for the rest of the world. Now, if you apply that criteria to the United Nations, you see that it was something that was done to get brought, brought into being by the victors, by the allies of World War II, who were on the winning side. Those became the five permanent members of the Security Council. At the same time, it had a General Assembly where it had the notion of uh, sovereign equality one country, one vote. Everybody knew that there was a mismatch in the balance of responsibilities and power between the Security Council and the General Assembly. But nevertheless, it was seen as something that was desirable in order to sustain peace and security, contribute to development. And in the years that followed, we found that the UN gained universal membership. Nearly all countries of the world are party to it. Now, these two criteria, convergence of views among the major powers of the day and the ability to present it as a global public good in order to get a universal adherence is something that you find, let us say, in the coming into being of WTO or any, any multilateral organization. However, the equations of power don't, are not permanent and they change. And eventually, they, that is how legitimacy gets eroded. And what we have seen, particularly if we look into the history of the United Nations, with, as long as there was the Cold War, there was a sense of balance. I mean, the UN would get frozen out because one country's veto would negate another country's veto. There were two superpowers. But post the Cold War, we have seen a gradual decline in the ability of the United Nations to undertake any kind of meaningful roles. The Israel crisis is just one of those. We saw the UN looking helpless during the global health crisis caused by COVID-19. And we can go back over the last two or three decades and you will find that the UN has been like a bystander. Because major powers today have developed such severe differences that it has made it impossible for the United Nations with its frozen membership of decision-making bodies like the UN Security Council to be able to undertake any meaningful actions. I'm sorry, this has been a long answer, but I think it is important to understand where
0: the UN comes from true i would uh, i would begin take from here and ask ambassador kaju because he has dealt with terrorism related issues uh, quite intensively in his career and i would ask him uh, is this argument also uh, not true when it comes to the un's handling of terrorism as well
2: uh kalol uh, thank you and it's a pleasure being with you and rakesh uh, in this pale podcast uh, let me add a A few points to what Rakesh has said. Uh, The UN Security Council is responsible for the maintenance of international peace and security. So uh, that task is not with the UNGA. Point two. Rakesh has correctly said that the UN reflected when when it was established uh, the uh, the conception of a world order which was a really the based on the thinking of the victors of the Second World War. Point three in the maintenance of international peace and security, the very fact that the five countries gave themselves a veto meant that. In this aspect, each country had the overriding right to look after its, inter- its national interest. So if the UN Security Council was taking any action, it had this, one of these five countries could say that, no, what you're doing is contrary to our national interest. And therefore, we it. So, hence, unless we conceive of a different setup entirely for the maintenance of international peace and security, I do not think that the UN Security Council, which is the body responsible, can really deliver the goods. Even, and I venture to suggest that even if it is expanded, because the five will not give up the veto. Even the talks about expanding permanent members of the council is not related to their having a veto. The veto will be with this five. So I uh, don't think that we should look to the UN for any solution Uh, Unless the five think that their national interests converge and I don't see that happening. So uh, the UNGA which which Rakesh has correctly said reflects in a sense the democratic will of uh, its the member states of the UN or the international community can well take a, a position like it has on the Jordanian resolution but that will have no effect and terrorism on which you have specifically asked me is also related to international peace and security it there was a time till 9 11 when uh, the western countries and they say the other p5 countries thought that they were immune from terrorism that terrorism was a third world phenomena, or in, in the current parlance, a global south phenomena, 9 11 shook that belief. And hence, terrorism came as a threat to international peace and security on the UN radar. But here again, the same problems which lie in other dimensions of international peace and security lie also in how the unsc deals with terrorism so i see no hope frankly from the unsc whether uh, to address uh, these crucial issues uh, to address and fulfill its mandate in its present complexion or in any other complexion that we may give it because as Rakesh has said, it must reflect contemporary realities. Agreed, but as long as there are there is a veto with certain countries, and I don't see that dif- that changing, we it really can't in its de- uh, deliver the goods because a problem lies at its core.
0: Right, sir. Um, I would uh, ask you in this. Context. I mean, both of you have painted a very grim picture. It appears that nothing can be really expected from the United Nations. So then what is really an option before the world to deal with this sort of a crisis, which gives rise to very, very critical questions before the humanity? Where do we go, sir? Ambassador Karju.
2: Well, uh, the picture is indeed gloomy i've often thought that we are living in an age of competitive victimhood whether it is within nation states some nation states at least or whether it is in the international arena if you ask the israelis they would point to uh, their suffering uh, uh, through the centuries through the millennia and particularly uh, what was inflicted on them in the concentration camps of nazi germany and it is telling that uh, benjamin netanyahu has said that uh, october 7th was uh, the was the grimmest day for the jewish people after the holocaust so on the one hand they have this sense of victimhood which leads, leaves them with, with very little sympathy or empathy uh, for the people on whom they are inflicting suffering. Because quite frankly, they are inflicting suffering on the Palestinian people. Uh, they justify that from, I would imagine, from what they've suffered uh, till now. On the other hand, the Palestinian people uh, feel that... Uh, uh, whereas what the Jews suffered was in Europe and not in Palestine or not in the Arab world, or uh, they are being made to pay for the sins of Europe, and that Israel is is is, a, is a really responsible uh, uh, for an extension of uh, of. Uh, what the europeans in uh, sort of want so at if you look at all this i don't see uh, any any easy end because is, israel is determined to eliminate hamas and they, netanyahu has already warned his his people and they formed a, uh, an emergency unity government which itself shows that uh, that the Israeli people are united on this. There will be a reckoning later on at failure, but on this, they are united. And in this, they are backed by uh, the U.S., which, as we know, uh, where, as we know, the Jewish lobby is very strong.
0: Right. Ambassador Rakesh um, Sood, you know, as we heard that Ambassador Kaju is referring to competitive victimhood being the card that the the nation states are using, uh, but my argument is: isn't it the case that the states always use some argument or the other to portray themselves as the aggrieved party? Uh, you know, whether it's in the Second World War, whether in case of territorial uh, uh, you know claims during the before the Second World War, most of the countries really had similar sort of arguments that they are the ones who have genuine grievances, and each country tries to push its agenda by citing its grievances, whether real or imaginary. Uh, If if that is the case, then is the liberal international order created during the League of Nations uh, debates, uh, is this order now coming to an end, Ambassador Suh?
1: Well, Kalol, two things. First of all, the liberal international rule-based order is a myth. You know, it was, if if you look at the United Nations, let me, I mean, as I explained to you, how does a global order get uh, framed? And I explained to you during the Cold War, what you had was a liberal Western order led by one hegemon called the United States of America. It was the leading economy. It provided the security through NATO and other uh, military alliances, including in Asia with Japan, South Korea, and so on. So you had a liberal Western order. It was not an international order. With the end of the Cold War, what happened is that there was a unipolar moment. And the unipolar moment, you can say, lasted a decade, a decade and a half, whatever, whichever. Time frame you want to put on it. But I think everybody would agree that by 2008, the global financial crisis, that unipolar moment had disappeared because two, three things happened. You saw uh, the Afghanistan, uh, US getting into Afghanistan initially with the full support of the international community, but then gradually the international community started, uh, you know, uh, providing less and less support because the U.S. was making fundamental mistakes. Then the U.S. misadventure in Iraq, and then the global financial crisis in the Western economies. So, but if you look at it through the wars that took place after the end of the Cold War, let's take the Balkans. UN had no role. The U.S. was the unipolar hegemon. They did what they wanted. You look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan. I mean, in Afghanistan, the U.N. came in with, as Lakhdar Brahimi used to say, a light footprint. Lakhdar Brahimi was the U.N. special representative. And I'm sure Vivek would recall this phrase, light footprint. So then came Iraq. Again, there was no U.N. involved. Then you saw other smaller conflicts like Mali, where France got involved, Libya, where the Europeans and the Americans got involved. There was no UN sanction to any of these conflicts. So, none of these crises you find the UN actually playing a role because what had happened is that the world by the end, by 2008, was emerging as more of a, as everybody says, a multipolar world. Now, a multipolar world requires uh, multilateralism, multilateralism means rules of the road that are decided upon by the powers that be, namely the poles. But when you get multipolarity without multilateral, but multilateralism has taken a backseat because the old order lost legitimacy. The new order that should serve a multipolar world hasn't yet come into existence so multipolarity without multilateralism only leads to exercise of force and chaos so which is why um you know uh, ambassador cardu also said that as you said the picture looks gloomy because there is no rule maker and so this business of a liberal international rule based order there is now a pushback the Chinese have come out very openly and said that they don't support this kind of a liberal international rule-based order. This is nothing but U.S. hegemony. And during the Cold War, it was nothing but U.S. hegemony. So, after the Cold War, when the U.S. started applying it in a global sense, uh, it sooner or later it led to a backlash in certain quarters. And that is what we are seeing. And meanwhile, the U.S.'s own blunders have not entirely enabled it to carry this forward as a globally attractive public good.
0: Right. So um, we in India, of course, just very recently in September held the G20 summit. And in the preparatory phase for the summit, we repeatedly heard how the G20 and other such platforms were appearing to be more attractive and and more functional uh, when it comes to dealing with contentious issues of the world. Now, uh, India just hosted it, and yet we don't see that sort of active diplomacy coming from India. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's still, I think, uh, the the head of G20, a few more days to go. Um, so what does it really appear like? Is India not really in a position to bring in a diplomatic solution for the Gaza crisis, or uh, could, India have done, uh, could India have done something more for, for solving this crisis? Ambassador Kajju. Well, uh, let me first go
2: back to the unipolar uh, moment. I think uh, Rakesh is right that uh, the, the end of the Cold War uh, saw the demise of the Soviet Union and Russia in chaos. And that chaos continued through the 1990s. Uh, China was rising, but it it was still uh, hiding its fire, uh, so to speak. So that was the moment when the Americans and their allies were able to proceed within the UN or outside the UN as they wanted. But the concept of the UN Security Council in its present shape as long as the vetoes are there, I would submit to you, uh, does not provide any hope for addressing an issue, an international issue, where the national interests of the P5 are in conflict. So that is uh, that is point one that I wish to make. Now the second point that you raised about the G20.
0: Look, and also, India's uh, India's um, activism. I mean, has India missed out on an opportunity to solve a globally important crisis in this crucial period in its diplomatic history as well? Look, uh, India has
2: done has done well economically over the past two decades. It's, uh, the, the, we know that. Uh, Uh, The changes began in the 1990s and then have gradually accelerated. We also know that this economic uh, success has translated into some elements of an increase in national power. But I don't think we should have an exaggerated notion of what India uh, can do. Diplomatically. Or otherwise, now let's take the Middle East, for example, or West Asia. Traditionally, uh, uh, if you look at uh, starting with, uh, say, the 1950s, uh, India was uh, uh, was, uh, aligned with the progressive states, quote unquote, progressive states of West Asia. And uh, at that stage, the conservative states uh, led by Saudi Arabia took a back seat. But starting from the 1970s, especially after 1973, when the transformation of the Arab Gulf states began, and uh, that transformation was at an astonishing rate, India developed very major interests in. Uh, these states. And these are comprehensive interests, especially economic, but other interests too. At that stage, I believe we started from the 1980s, fol- started following a policy of bilateralism with each state. And we refused to get involved in the internecine quarrels of these states. In 1992, we recognized Israel, but I think that did not detract from an essential policy of a direct bilateral interstate relationship with each of these countries. Mm -hmm. Now, the difficulty is that that policy we've changed to an extent. And the I2U2 group, even if we say it's, its orientation is economic and technological, and i make are a manifestation of this change now that being the case your whatever we may say about our support for the palestinian cause has diluted our uh, our ability to my mind to intervene diplomatically in this crisis and if you see on October seventh, uh, the prime minister tweeted completely uh, on uh, pro in a pro-Israel manner, and at a time when very little information was available. Actually, what was happening in the Hamas attack, and he was right. The Hamas attack was a terrorist attack. Then, on October ten, came the next tweet of the prime minister based on a conversation that Netanyahu had with him, telephonic conversation. It's only on October 12th that the official spokesperson balanced it out by reiterating our traditional position on the Arab, on the Israel-Palestinian issue, even while stressing the the terrorism of uh, the Hamas attack. Thereafter, we've given, sent aid to Gaza. Uh, The prime minister has talked to various Arab leaders. But I don't think we are really in a position to uh, play a mediatory role, even if we are head of the G20. Because this is a game that is now being played by by really uh, at a really at a much, a much more superior level. Uh, and I think uh, uh, while we are a confident country, while we have interests and we, we serve these interests and while our diplomacy is active, yet I, I for one, have always believed that one should be aware of the limitations uh, of our, our position and the limitations of what we can do diplomatically.
0: Right, right. Uh, Ambassador Sood. Uh, though the situation as of now is quite critical. We saw yesterday Yemen has um, has declared war on Israel. There is, um, there is continuous uh, rocket launching going on from Hezbollah towards northern borders of Israel. And of course, there is the ongoing campaign by the IDF against Gaza civilians also and the hamas now um from your point of view how is the security situation in the region going to unfold is the conflict going to expand and if it expands as we are already seeing the early trends what are the options before india ambassadors uh, because we have millions of indians in the gulf region um, you know i would like to know what do you really foresee uh so sir well um uh, as
1: ambassador katsu uh, spelled out our interests in the west asian region have grown we have uh, strong ties with the gulf arab states and we have strong ties with israel we have a large diaspora and uh, and all of that and plus of course in addition to the energy supplies that we get from the gulf arab states now At the current moment, I think the fact is that uh, what is happening in the Israeli war is also caught up to a great extent with domestic Israeli politics. And there is a reason for it. I mean, uh, Netanyahu has has proven to be a fairly divisive prime minister. His current coalition consists of uh, extreme right wing Parties, which does not leave him with any kind of a leeway, uh, he has been trying to undertake a whole slew of judicial reforms, which would uh, enable him to escape the judicial net of where he is under investigation for corruption and nepotism charges. So that is why for the last six, seven months, every weekend, we have seen sustained protests in Israel. Now, this is the domestic political backdrop. Given this, it is difficult for him at this stage to find a way out of the current conflict. In fact, uh, as Ambassador Karju said, there is, I mean, there will be uh, an inquiry commission that is going to be set up. This is standard practice in Israel which will be set up to look into the failure of intelligence, the failure of preparedness, lapses, etc., etc. But that will only take place once the fighting actually comes to an end. The longer the fighting continues, the longer it the setting up of such a commission will be postponed. So to that extent, for the current political dispensation in Israel, it may sound cynical, but the continuation of the conflict serves a limited political end. Now, as far as the Arabs are concerned, um, the Palestinians, while there is support in the Arab world, in the Muslim world for the plight of the Palestinians, the fact is that within the Gulf Arab states, there is little sympathy or even in Egypt and Jordan, there is little sympathy. Uh in terms of, let's say, you won't find like, you know, we saw in the Ukraine war, the Ukrainians went out and the other European countries accepted them as refugees, you know, Poland and uh, various other countries. You won't find that. We saw how Egypt kept that border sealed. They don't want any more refugees because they feel that once they come in, uh, they will not go back and they so they kept that border sealed till we saw the us coming in and uh, taking a very very active role in it so the us is the major influencing power and the us is also caught up in an election this thing because next year is the us election and uh, it is involved in two conflicts in ukraine as well as in uh, uh, in the in the middle east with both of them and so, Biden has to look at this thing in terms of his domestic political ratings for his re election campaign. So, there is all kinds of things that are happening. And I'm afraid in this, uh, you don't have an end game for the current conflict. The reason you don't have an end game is because the solution that the West had kind of uh, visualized and had worked on for the last few years beginning under Trump and then under President Biden, through the Abraham Accords and all the rest of it, was that if relations between Israel and the Arab states can be normalized, then hopefully the Palestinian problem will go away. That myth has been exploded. And the... Attack by Hamas on 7th of October has demonstrated that the Palestinian problem is not going away because the fact is that precious little or nothing at all was really done to resolve the Palestinian problem despite the various commitments, the UN Security Council resolutions, etc., etc., to implement what was seen as a
0: lasting solution
1: to this issue.
0: Hmm. Ambassador Kajju, um, um, uh, thank you uh, very much for participating in this conversation. And also, Ambassador Rakesh, thank you so much. I'm actually asking the last question here, Ambassador Sud. Um I would ask you that, I mean, given the situation that we are in, where the great where they, uh, the veto-wielding powers of the United Nations Security Council are not at convergence, the UN can't be trusted with finding a solution, the situation is unfolding at a much superior level, as Ambassador Kajju has said. Now, what really is the solution ahead? I mean, is the world really looking at a kind of a, no stalemated conflict? Because when we saw the Ukraine crisis, there was call for ceasefire. There was call for immediate cessation of hostilities, including, I mean, uh, when the Prime Minister Narendra Modi called for peace. Uh, in the Ukraine and said, this is not the time for war, but nobody is coming out openly and calling for a ceasefire. Why is it so difficult, Ambassador Su, to call for a ceasefire now?
1: Well, because, as I said, a ceasefire uh, will bring to the fore the domestic divisions within Israel at the moment and will establish a commission of inquiry. And uh, it doesn't suit the current regime. So they would rather continue with this. And of course, there is also a mood in Israel, which is uh, angry. And to an extent, there is a national unity government, although, I mean, I keep reading from time to time that Benny Gantz, uh, who joined the national unity government, uh, you know, has occasionally voiced criticism of, you know, the fact that he doesn't get enough of a role uh, in private, but uh, so far the national unity government is staying and the Israeli position taken by Prime Minister Netanyahu is being fully backed by the United States for its own reasons of domestic politics. So at this stage, I don't foresee a ceasefire. Uh, That is one reason why Israelis have not responded positively to the General Assembly resolution which called for a humanitarian pause or a humanitarian ceasefire.
0: Ambassador Kaju, why is it so difficult to call even for a ceasefire or even a humanitarian pause? Why? What is really stopping the countries from calling for that?
2: Uh, well, I think uh, one hundred and twenty countries uh, did call for a humanitarian pause, so it shows. But that's
0: that, not binding.
2: That, right? that's, what I, that's what I I said. The UN SC, I have no hope at all because of uh, there is a problem which lies at its very core. Uh, And on this, uh, outside the UNSC too, the major powers are not willing to uh, see eye to eye. But uh, let me put it, let me make two or three points. One, uh, Netanyahu's political future is toast. I think uh, on that, I have no doubt. Uh, But I think the sentiment within Israel and within the Jewish people outside Israel except for a few uh, who believe in peace and who believe that war is not a solution uh, is that hamas must pay a price for the terrible atrocities which it inflicted and these people do not have any sympathy with the innocent in gaza who are suffering such a terrible punishment rakesh is absolutely right Uh, the the way things were being worked out was really to to forget the palestinian issue and to have an arrangement uh, between uh, israel and the other major arab states uh, in continuation of what has happened over the decades but even more recently and so the Palestinian issue would be confined to the backwaters. What Hamas' attack has done is that it has brought it forth front and center. And there's now no escape from it. But uh, I agree with Rakesh that uh, despite everything uh, among the Arabs in general, while they will keep mouthing sympathy for the Palestinians, uh, in actual fact, uh, uh, in actual fact, uh, uh, there is very little that they are willing to do practically. My last point: I don't think the Israelis, uh, as a as, that Israel as a country, leave alone Netanyahu's government. And I agree with Sir Rakesh that he is in, under under tremendous pressure. But I think this is, what has is, happened, what happened on October seventh, is goes far beyond Netanyahu. It goes to the very soul of of Israel as a country, the Israelis, as a people, the Jewish people. And they are determined that Hamas must be eliminated, that the Hamas leadership must go, that the tunnels must be cleared. And uh, if I may use a word, which I don't like using, that Gaza be sanitized and for that they are willing to pay a price I think uh, they are willing to pay a big price but they will not stop short of that and it's not linked to Netanyahu alone
0: Ambassador Su, and Ambassador Kaju, thank you so much for participating in today's um Pale, and um, we we'll look forward to more such engagements um, in future with you both um, of course, you know we have the issue of Palestinian statehood that perhaps at a later date we'll discuss. But as of now, we are really focused on why is the international um, the international uh, platforms that is the United Nations um, and the United Nation and others are unable to come to a solution for this crisis. Um, thank you both once again.